Well, good morning. I think I got this unmuted. Can you hear me? Wonderful. How's your week been? How's your week been? My week's been good. Um, I have this little sore throat that's kind of crept up on me all week long, and then it like lit on fire last night. So I'm sucking on a, a lozenge in the back of my back of my mouth that clatters on my teeth. You're gonna have to forgive me, but um, it's really helping me. So I appreciate the grace to uh, to do that. Isn't it good to have Art and Lucy back with us this morning? Thank you. One thing that's not good to do while you have a throat on fire is to sing. What's also not good is to sit in a worship service and not be able to sing. So I've been in tension up here, but uh, yeah, I sang and it didn't help, but it's okay. Well, I've, I apologize for that too. So he said he heard me, so I was just apologizing. So it has to be distracting. Uh, today, uh, we continue on a, a short little uh, series of messages that Dave introduced us to uh, last week on what it means to be the church. What does it mean to be the church? Theories about what church is, there's a whole lot of theories out there. What is church? What is the church? Is the church the building? Is the church the people? Is the church the message? Is the gospel embody the church better than, better than anything else? Um, the church is Christ's body. That's a metaphor that's used in Scripture, so we probably should, should pay attention to that. All sorts of descriptions out there, but certainly there's this component of, of inside and outside. When we talk about being the church, we have to understand that, that in, in one context, in the context of this place, in the context as we gather, we certainly form the church as we come together. And as we are together and as we be together, there's that, that promise in Scripture where two or three are gathered, surely God is with us. And that constitutes a piece of the church. But there's also the other component, the, the, the balancing component of who are we as we leave this place, as we walk out those doors. How are we the church in those moments, and, and how does the church represent itself in the world in which we live? So the, these, these two questions are the essence of what it means to be the church. Now, when Dave asked me to share a message about being the church, he invited me to take some time uh, to highlight foster care and the rampant need that's throughout our county, our state, our nation right now. In the U.S., there are approximately 400,000 foster children. Um, in systems represented. Uh, it, it's, it's not a national program. It's a state program. So each state sets up their own um, guidelines and their own laws um, that regulate the foster care system. But 400,000 kids, when you divide that by our total population, that's 0.12% uh, of the population, which doesn't sound that bad. But when you factor out adults that were not all children, I'm no longer... I may act like it sometimes, but we're no, we're no longer children. Um, when you factor out adults, that's about 4% of our kids. Four out of 100, two out of 50, one out of 25. 25 is about the size of a public school classroom, so about one 
in every class, in every school across the nation. Um, which is a little more real, a little more staggering, a little more poignant, maybe. Um, I want to I show you a video. Uh, it's kind of longer than most videos that we show, but it just talks about foster care. Um, and so if you'll turn your attention to the screen, uh, I invite you to uh, pay attention.
Isaiah 117. Um, I got the, the four out of 100 from taking 400,000 divided by an estimate. Their numbers are different on that video. Um, and it's kind of um, cut off at the end of, from the original video. But of those kids that you saw playing on the beach, about 60 or 70 of them, 60 to 70 percent of them have been adopted out of the foster care system. Um, a, a video that a friend of my wife's made um, and so um, just a pretty powerful reminder of, of the lives that are out there. Um, did you know that every day has like this emphasis or a theme or national something day? Have you guys been made aware of this? Um, so Monday, I looked some up for you. Monday was National Indian Pudding Day. Has anyone had Indian pudding is that politically correct to say? I don't even know if it is. But um, uh, Tuesday was National Pickle Day. I have had pickles. I like pickles. Do you like pickles? Not the sweet kind, but the dill kind. Amen. Amen. Uh, Wednesday was America Recycles Day and National Clean Out Your Refrigerator Day. Those are not meant to go together, folks. Sage. <laughs> I assume it's kind of in preparation for Thanksgiving, you know, give you a week of semi-empty fridge to prepare for all the stuff that you need to make Thanksgiving meal. Um, Thursday was National Fast Food Day, so after you clean out your fridge, go to fast food. Okay. Um, Friday was National Homemade Bread Day. I'm sorry. Yeah, that just makes me hungry. Um, Saturday was National Princess Day and Mickey Mouse's birthday. I think those are connected somehow. Um, and today is National Play Monopoly Day. For all you folks out there that like the long board game, parents, I apologize, um, today is National Play Monopoly Day. So the credit for this goes to nationaldaycalendar.com. You can celebrate a national day every day of the week. Um, and there were, there were five others on Wednesday that I didn't read, so every one of them had multiple. Um, but yesterday... Yesterday was also National Adoption Day. Of the 400,000 that are in foster care today, it's, a, it's estimated that about a quarter of them are legally free. The parents' rights have been revoked um, from those children, and they're simply waiting to be adopted. Uh, we thought it would be a fitting week to highlight this important ministry. Um, but today I'm not preaching about foster care. I can't preach about foster care. Um, if you open the Bible and you do a word search for the phrase foster care, you're not going to find it there. Um, you can find things that are similar. Uh, you, the Bible does talk about orphans. The Bible does talk about the fatherless. But foster care is not in the Bible, and good preaching focuses on what's in the Bible. So I can't preach about foster care. So we're off the hook. Don't worry about it. I'm just kidding. Um, and actually, that, people don't believe that. People don't believe that. If, in the video it talked about, in a recent survey, 77% of Christians think we ought to be involved, think we ought to do something with the foster care system, but few get involved. Only about one out of every 15 of those 70%, 77% 
that think we should get involved uh, do so. Only 3% of respondents opening their home um, as foster care homes to take, to take placements. Now, if I were smart, which I don't claim to be, but if I were smart, there's some really good verses out there about the fatherless and about the orphans. James 1.27 says this, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from becoming polluted by the world. Have you heard that verse before? Some of you have probably heard that verse before. Psalm 94 verse 6 Talk about how, how the evil slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. <laughs> Old Testament. Just love how brutal it is sometimes, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, be, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites, who were the Levites? What did they do? Cared for the temple in the Old Testament, right? And the tabernacle. Um, the place of worship, so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. Every three years, all your extra bring to the storehouse for these groups of people. So that, and, and so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Truth is this, and I was talking to somebody this week about it, if I just talk about foster care, if I say, we're going to focus on this today, um, some of you, some of you will check out. Some of you will say, well, I, I, I know that's not for me. I know that's not for me. About, probably about, maybe half would say, yeah, I've kind of worked through that, Trent. I, I've, I know it's there. I know it's needed. I would agree with you on that, but it's not for me. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to check out today. Um, I told somebody that I was, I, I, I was hoping that, that, uh, that they'd stay with me the whole time. So um, you can give your reasons for that. And, 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 I, and I listen and am compassionate to some of those reasons. I've heard them. I've heard those reasons a lot why someone says, I've, I've gone through that, Trent, and, and it's not for me. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not just going to leave it at foster foster care today. But I have developed this, this deep conviction. I was talking to a friend of mine. His name is Dan Samuelson, um, and he is the director, executive director of a ministry called Welcome Home, um, which is a part of the Nazarene Christian, Nazarene Christian Alliance Northwest, NCA Northwest. Um, and his ministry of Welcome Home is designed to help churches encourage their people to be ready to welcome and to care for refugees in their community. So refugees sometimes come to the United States and, and, and welcome home takes them from the point at which the government says, okay, you should be good now, you should be able to make it, and, and encourages people in churches to come alongside of these refugees who've gained interest into this country legally and say, you're a person. And I want to know you. And I want to invite you into our home to feed you, if you have questions about what you experience here. Um, and, and that's what this ministry is, um, uh, Welcome Home. And, and I was sharing with him a little bit about my passion for foster care. And, and what he said to me was something like this. He said, you see, Trent, you and I have the same, same message with a different expression. He said, until our people, until the church until us, until we 
get serious about discipleship, kids in foster care and refugees without neighbors won't matter enough to do anything about. Let me say that again. He said it, not me. You see, Trent, you and I have the same message with a different expression. Until our people, until the church gets serious about discipleship, kids in foster care and refugees without neighbors won't matter enough to do anything about. What I realized in that moment is that he and I are competitors, so don't care about refugees. <laughs> just care about foster kids. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, Instead of finding a great orphan verse and proof texting it to you and saying, uh, you know, I throw a bunch of stats at you, we can all feel convicted together, and I say, go get involved. Um, instead, I want to preach a passage. Is that okay? Can we talk about the Bible today? I think that's good. Um, and, and when I preach, I love to turn to the lectionary. The lectionary is a, is a, a set of uh, passages that, that help guide us through the whole gamut of scripture. Um, and today, the, the verses for this Sunday just kind of leapt off the page at me. So if you would, would you turn to Matthew with me? Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Um, we have rolled over our, our Wi-Fi system here, so if you have a device and, it, and it's not connecting, um, we did secure both of our, our uh, networks, but the password is Centralia Church. So it's not a secret, it's just there. So connect to 2.4 or to dash 5, either one of the, the networks, this password is the same. So Centralia Church is the password there. Um, Matthew chapter 25, verse, starting at verse 14, I'm going to read through verse 30. Um, the lectionary passage for this Sunday. Um, if you're able, would you please stand uh, out of reverence for the word as we read this? I'm reading from the NIV this week. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied again, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. 
So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? This parable is, is really pretty challenging for me on a number of levels, maybe even scary. Um, it, it, it first appears pretty straightforward. Um, and, and I'm afraid that sometimes it's been interpreted ways that, that make me a little uncomfortable, that, that disturb me a little bit. Uh, and, 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 <laughs> and if I'm honest with myself, there's a lot more passages out there that kind of tie into foster care a little more naturally, but, but don't worry, uh, we'll get there, okay? Um, the parable starts with the words, again. Does your parable start with the word again? Okay, so what we need to do is take a look at the whole section of the writer and, and look at the previous section. The previous section was talking about the kingdom of God. Now, some translations say the kingdom of God. It actually repeats that, so it doesn't leave it to chance. It's connecting the previous parable with this parable. So the, the first one was said, the kingdom of God is like, and the second one says, again, it, and it goes on to this parable. Um, so like the last parable, it is referring to the kingdom of God. And we have this little story. We have this little narrative. Um, we got three servants. Um, servant A, we're going to call him Akim. Okay, Akim comes and gets five and makes five. Um, now, what are they? Are they uh, the old NIV used to say talents. The new NIV, which I just talked to, to God, or just read from, says bags of gold. Um, Common English Bible says coins. There's all sorts of things um, that it's called or interpreted. But the point is that it's a very valuable sum of money. Okay, very valuable sum of money. Does somebody have a footnote by, by bags of gold or talents and it says like 15 years worth of wages? Okay, so average American income times that by 15. It's a lot of money to receive five bags of gold. We're gonna go with bags of gold. That's what I read. The truth is it doesn't, doesn't matter because so the point isn't the amount of money. Um, servant B, we'll call him Baldrick. Baldrick gets two, makes two. So we've got Akeem who had five, made five, he's got ten. Baldrick had two, made two, he's now got four. Um, and then servant C, Cassius, gets one. He buries it, but he draws a good map. because he, gets, he goes right back and finds it finds exactly where it is, and the master returns. A king comes back, and he says, hey, hey, look, um, I, I, I had five. I made five. The master says, well done. You did so great. Nice job. I'm proud of you. Come and share my happiness. Uh, Baldrick comes back, says, here's my two more. Yay. Nice job, too. Good job. You did well enough. Then the story turns when Cassius comes back to the master. Cassius says some pretty <laughs> blunt things to his master, right? 
Um, you're a hard man. You harvest where you haven't sown. You gather where you haven't scattered seed. I hid your bag of gold. Here it is. He dusts it off and hands it back to his master. The master's not happy. Master ain't happy at all. He's not pleased. This does not produce. I think Cassius thought he was doing the smart thing. It, there's evidence that he's like, you know, I, I protected what was yours and I'm giving it back to you and, and just thank you for entrusting this money to me. I, I stayed safe. I kept your money safe. I kept your bag of gold safe. And, and he doesn't get the reaction that, that Cassius wanted. Um, <laughs> he's, he's labeled wicked and lazy. Not two things you want to include on your resume. Okay, uh, the master doesn't deny the allegations, which is really hard for me. If we're talking about the kingdom of God, if this is what this parable is is referencing, and we're talking about servants and masters, then master the master seems like it points to God, and then we have these kind of interesting commentary, or this interesting commentary about the master that he he harvest where he hasn't sown, and he gathers where he hasn't scattered seed. Um, and the master doesn't deny that. He actually repeats it, right? Did you catch that? Master actually repeats it, and then says, at least you could have put it on deposit and made some interest with what I've given you, and you didn't even do that. You're so stinking lazy, so the one bag is given to Akim, the guy who had ten, the worthless servant, is thrown outside, darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. I don't like gnashing of teeth. That's a, that's a terrible description. I don't think he's in a very good place. Right? So, so there are some really scary ways of interpreting this parable. Okay? This ends up sounding like the parable of the two good servants and the one bad servant. Right? Um, it's really easy uh, to, to think that way. The parable of doing well. Do good, God rewards you. Do bad, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throw you out in the darkness, you worthless piece of trash. Okay. I don't think that's the meaning of this parable. Praise the Lord. I don't think that's the meaning of this parable. Perfect parable for our society that's addicted to performance and profit and productivity. It's really easy to say, look, God rewards us when we do well. If you just perform well enough, God has got your back and you're in. <laughs> it's horrible theology. It's not the God we serve. That's not the picture of the kingdom of God that we're supposed to get. I think we're, we're easily colored by our, uh, well, I shouldn't say we. I know I am easily colored by my materialistic, capitalistic society that I live in sometimes. The, the, this, is, this is really how, we know that doesn't describe God, but Somehow that makes sense to me um, in the world in which we live. And it makes sense to think of it that way, but I don't think that's right. 
There's also this scary little piece about the master, right? That, that if, we, if we're talking about the kingdom of God, the parable talks about the master. Certainly that's metaphorically speaking to God. Um, and, and the master kind of appears to be stealing. Doesn't seem to be ethical. Doesn't seem to be righteous. And when confronted, the master offers no correction, just accepting it and continuing to scold the, weak, the, the, the worthless, the, the lazy servant. What do we do with that? We just label it as kind of a, an insufficient metaphor and, and, and maybe, maybe it just falls short at that point. Um, certainly no metaphor can, can completely represent God perfectly. I have a suspicion about what that means. Um, but it's not that God, God cheats or God gathers where he hasn't sown. Um, as long as we continue to look at this par- parable economically, we, we come to scary points in our understanding of what this parable means. And so I want to kind of shift it. I kind of want to change it and, and, and shed a different light because we, the parable looked at economically gets this results-oriented picture of God and the kingdom of God. The, the results are what it's all about. The, the, the master really wants winners. We're going to be winners for God. We're going we're gonna to double our accounts. We're going to get the job done, double our assets, have good managerial skills, and this is what God wants. God wants the winners. We're stuck. We're stuck in understanding the parable if we view it economically. What I want to encourage you to do as you read this parable is to understand the parable relationally. Look at the metaphor in a new light. What, is it un- what does it mean to look at the parable relationally? I propose this. The final servant didn't know his master well. I propose this, that that third and final servant didn't know his master well. He didn't understand the heart of the master. Now, some of you might argue this point with me, but that's okay. I could, I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be wrong. I don't believe the first servant was rewarded for his success. I don't believe the final servant was punished for lack of results. He's scolded for, la- for laziness and wickedness. He's chided for allowing the fear to dictate his life. And when the master scolded him, this option of putting the money even on interest-bearing account seems even odd. That's not, that's clearly not what the master wanted. But the final servant's greatest error was to not know the heart of the master. Do you understand that money wasn't important to this master? (laughs) You don't give your servants five bags of gold and two bags of gold and one bag of gold when you're leaving town if money is the, the end goal. If you're obsessed with money, that's not what you do. Why does he give it to his servants? Did you ever notice this? I didn't notice this until this week. The master never takes the money back. There's no, there's no mention of that. The master doesn't take the money back. I think this master let these guys continue to use the money, to continue to use 
what they were doing. Why take it back? It's like they got their shot and they invested all they had into this season while the master was away. They poured themselves into it. They poured their life into it. And look what happened. Five became ten and two became four. (laughs) Somebody went and buried their money. Do you understand how two caught the, caught the heart of the master? And one didn't. One just missed it. One just didn't understand their master well at all. And I think, I think the, the first two got to keep the money and got to continue playing in the sandbox with their master and saying, what else can we do? What can we do with what you've given me? When we pursue the understanding of this parable from a relational standpoint, we understand that our sole responsibility is to understand, to get to know the heart of the master. And that's what these first two servants did. That's how they got it right. Because they understood. (laughs) Somebody's in the back going, I thought we were going to talk about foster care, Trent. What's going on? When you dive into the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the disciple journey you're on leads you deeper and deeper and deeper into into God's story that's contained in this book, you come to the place where God begins to move you. And that place, and the place that discipleship, getting to know God moves you, is toward the margins. If you grabbed a core guide today, uh, the message, the title of, of my message today is Moved to the Margins. Moved to the Margins. Uh, that's not a common understanding of discipleship. When I think of discipleship traditionally understood, I think of, you know, Bible studies. Guess what? We're going to continue to have Bible studies. <laughs> those, aren't, those are a good thing. Okay. We're going to continue to have Bible studies. We're, going to, we're, going to, we're, we're always going to have Bible studies. But they, they point out those doors to the margins, to the margins of our society, the people that are broken, to the people that are hurting in our community and in our neighborhood and in our world. We're going to continue to do core groups. Core groups are a great discipleship activity. Come together, talk about the sermon, grow together, challenge each other, say, you know, Trent, you're not, <laughs> you're kind of being hypocritical when you say that. What? That, that, that helps me grow. When that's from a friend, that helps me grow. And that's what core groups are designed to do, where we can be honest with each other and say, I'm really struggling with this passage. Help me, help me understand it. We're going to continue to do core groups. But core groups point out the front door. Because it's part of our discipleship process that we say, I want to know the heart of the master. And as we learn the heart of the master, it takes us out and moves us out. Look at Jesus' ministry. He's the one that defended the adulteress. Looked her in the eye and says, neither neither do I condemn you. He touched the lepers. He went to the home of the short, corrupt tax collector. He invited the children to his lap. He went to the fisherman, the dirty, stinky fisherman, and said, come, follow me. 
get to know the master and let's change the world. He went to the sinners. He went to the pagans. Who were the ones he scolded the most often? Just like this third servant, the holy and righteous, the puffed up ones, the religious leaders, the religious elite, the ones who had been worshiping their whole lives and grown stale. That's who Jesus scolded. They were the ones, they were the ones that needed to understand the master, not the pagans. The ministry of Jesus Christ moves us to the margins of society to love first and to serve unconditionally next those that we find there. Discipleship moves us there. God moves us there. Jesus moves us there as we get to know the, the master. That's, that's what my friend Dan was talking about. Getting, getting to know the master is the only thing that takes us there, that, that helps us move to the margins. When we understand Christ better, when we follow his nudging and his leading in our lives, we're moved to the margins by God, by knowing the master. And where does knowing the master lead us? If you follow the context of this writing, what's the next, what's the next thing that Jesus talks about? He says, and I saw humanity before me and I saw two groups. And one gets told, you clothed me when I was naked. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You visited me in prison. And they're like, what? When did we, when did we do that? He says, when you did it for the least of me, you did it to me. This is the next section of Scripture in Matthew. He looks at the other side and says, you know, I was there and naked and you gave me no clothes. I was hungry, you didn't give me a bite. I was thirsty, and there wasn't a water bottle in your hands. I was tired, cold, wet, and you offered me no shelter. And these people said, if we would have seen you, God, we would have let you in. And what you haven't done for the least of these you haven't done for me. This is the heart of the master. For those that, that failed in their job to feed the poor or to shelter the poor, to feed the hungry, to offer drink to the thirsty, we get imagery that's similar to the weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? It says, uh, you know, thrown out into darkness. You get this sense that knowing the master is important, that knowing the master is important enough to follow to follow the nudges, to follow where he leads us and where he takes us. And please understand, it's not because Pastor Trent stands up here on the stage and declares these things to be true. It's not because you're listening to Pastor Dave or Pastor Art or Pastor Ken or you watched a really good online video or a podcast. That doesn't move us anywhere. It's not because there's 400,000 kids in foster care. It's not the plight of refugees stuck in a confusing and fast-paced society that they don't understand that should move us to the margins. It's knowing the heart of the master and following, in, following him and falling in love 
with God. It's not the weight of the need from the poor, the homeless, the disabled, the disenfranchised, the disregarded. All of these motivations will quit on you. All of these motivations that I list will quit on you. You'll get jaded. You'll get weary. And it will run out. And you will lose interest. But the love of Christ that fills the disciple to Christ follower, that journey of discipleship, the love of Christ that comes as you're continuing to grow and as you're continuing to take steps in faith, that will carry you. When you're moved to the margin, whatever margin you choose to pursue, it will birth in your heart this passion and energy because you're following Christ there. It will become for you the outgrowth of your discipleship journey. I told you about half of you will check out on the whole foster care thing. And what I want to tell you is there are so many margins towards which we can move and be moved by God. The foster care is not the only expression. And that's important to me. And I think that's kind of the explanation of some of that stat that says, and and I apologize for the, the stats that were like, written in white and then had a white background and you couldn't see them. It shows up a lot better on a computer. If you follow me on Facebook, I'll I'll post that video and you can watch it and maybe catch some of those statistics a little bit better. But one of them said 77% of Christians believe we ought to be involved in foster care and 5% are involved, 3% opening their home. And part of the reason is because we can't cover all the margins. I'm not responsible to visit the prisons and to serve the homeless and to serve in foster care and to welcome refugees. I can't save the world. And neither can you. But in your discipleship journey, where has God led you to the margins? Where has God called you to put your life out there, to take the bag of gold that he's given you And say, God, what can we do together? How can we invest this? How can we use this? I have a warning. Life on the margins is fantastic. It's raw. It's vulnerable. It's meaningful. It's powerful. One thing, it's not easy. It's never easy. When you walk to the margins as you follow God, you will find yourself stretched in ways you've never experienced before. (laughs) It won't be comfortable, and it won't be easy. There will be stories of such great human needs, such desperate brokenness, and your view of the world will be forever changed. Praise the Lord. Lord, have mercy but praise the Lord. What's your action step today? Where is God calling you? The first step is simply knowing the heart of the master. Don't be caught like the third servant, kind of clueless at what the master wanted. Sometimes we get preoccupied with life and school and a job and family and sports and following our team and planning our next vacation. There's there's a lot to do. So what do we do? We bury our bag amidst the busyness of everything else, we say, I'll just set this down for a while. Maybe bury it. 
because we aren't compelled by knowing the heart of the master. Others of you will have to listen intently. You recognize your gift given by the master and it's, it's time to allow God to move you to the margins. Will that be foster care? I don't, I don't know. I can't answer that. I do know that we need foster parents like crazy. Um, ones that, that are more afraid of kids not being loved than they are afraid of being hurt. We need foster care parents that are more afraid of kids not being loved than they are afraid of themselves being hurt. Uh, We also need respite foster parents, short-term commitment, where we give foster parents a break. We also need uh, advocates and court-appointed guardian ad litems to represent these children. What if the church got involved that way? To be able to step back and take a broad view of the case and say, as I've prayed, they wouldn't say that part in court, as I've prayed, as I've listened to the foster parents, I've listened to the child, as I've listened to the birth parents, this is what's best. They get, they get an incredible picture of what it means or, or, or an incredible wide view of, of the case and allowed to make recommendations to the courts. Um, Talk to a foster parent. Talk to a social worker and see, where might God lead you? Lynn and I are always open to talking to people. But again, foster care may not be, may not be your margin. Uh, maybe you're drawn more to something like welcome home and serving refugee populations. Um, this country can be confusing <laughs> and a complicated place. And we all need to advocate. We all need to care for those around us. Or maybe the homeless, or maybe the disabled, or maybe a nursing home resident who has no family left to come visit them. Maybe that's your margin. Or maybe, or maybe, or maybe. There's lots of margins out there. The truth is we can all find excuses. I'm too young, I'm too old. I'm too weak, I'm too tired, I'm all spent, I've done my time, I don't have anything to give. Maybe that's some of you today. Maybe today some of you feel kicked to the curb. Maybe you say, you know, Trent, when you're talking about the margins, that's kind of me in a lot of ways. You're barely making it. We're lost, we're broken, and you're waiting for the prayer to be answered that God might come through to you, I also want to say there are other margins and there's ways to, to recognize what God has given you and say, God, I don't want to sit on this. I don't want to bury it. Let's use it and make something beautiful together. Whatever I have, help me see what I have and help me make it beautiful with you. I'll leave you today with a true story. I had another video I wanted to show, but I'm not going to show it today. I might post it. Um, it really talks about someone who felt like they were at the end of their rope, um, and yet were able to turn around and have a new perspective to say, what do I have to offer to the people around me? I'm not, we're not going to take time for that this morning. I do want to leave you today with a true story. I read about a hero of mine recently, a warrior. She was given the opportunity to help out a foster family, became a respite foster parent, okay? So a foster family needs a break or they're going out of state or out of country for a, for a trip or, or a responsibility they have. The child can't leave the state. 
And so they have to be left with a respite foster family. And she, she knew a family that was in foster care, and she said, I could do that. I could do that for this family that I know. And so she signed up. She had to go through the whole training process, and it's a lot to go through, but she said it's worth it. After having a child in her home during this stay, she thought, the need is great. Maybe I should open my home. Maybe I should. Got signed up, said, I'm willing to take placements. She now has three placements, <laughs> ranging from high school to preschool, 17 to 2. Uh, all because she was willing to invest her bag of gold. That's which God had given her. She said, I'm willing to invest it. Oh, yeah, and she's a single mom. And she's not even 30. Never having birthed her children, but finds herself with children, making her way as a single mom, not letting all the valid excuses stop her because she knows the heart of the master and is willing to invest what she's been given. I read about a person like that and I think how she was so willing and why I am so stubborn (laughs) at points. Lord, move me to the margins. Lord, I choose to use what you've given me. Can you pray those two prayers? Lord, move me to the margins. And Lord, I choose to use what you've given me. Can you pray those two prayers? The people of God said, amen. The praise team is going to come while I pray. Maybe you need to reconnect today to the heart of the master. Maybe today,